Well, I am going to welcome up Johnny. Um, why don't we all give him a hand? Lovely. And it's so good that Johnny can be with us this evening to bring God's word. Um, and so for many of us, uh, we don't know you, Johnny. So it'd be good to get to know you a bit before you bring God's word to us. So can you tell us a bit about what you do? Sure. So uh, my name is Johnny. Uh, I work at Moreland's Bible College, which I know many of you will have heard of. It's the local Bible college to uh, Bournemouth Christchurch Pool. Uh, and so know some of you from that. So know Rob. Uh, I actually did Moreland's with Rob and Emily as well. And there's a few Moorlanders here today. Give us a cheer if you're from Moreland's at the moment. Yeah, sort of a quiet, yeah, sorry, drawn attention to you, haven't I? Um, and so, uh, yeah, work for Morelands. And at Morelands, we're really passionate about uh, equipping people uh, who are passionate about Jesus uh, to serve the church and the world. And so part of my role at Morelands is to let as many people know about that as, uh, as possible. We recognize that not everyone's called to the kind of ministry that Morelands trains people for, uh, but most people might know somebody who is. And so if you want to support Morelands, uh, one of the easiest and best ways you can do that is just to intentionally think, who is a, who is there that I know uh, who might be called into ministry uh, and just send them a text and try and link them up with Morelands. We'll take it from there. Uh, and we just think that, that can be good news for a lot of people. And we try our best uh, to um, faithfully do that as well as we possibly can. Amazing. Thank you. And can you tell us a bit about how you came to know Jesus? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I've got one of those traditional testimonies that most people might say is a little bit boring, where I grew up in a Christian family. Uh, but genuinely, I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for my mum and dad and their faith and, uh, and kind of how they exampled that to me. Um, but probably decision kind of came in a, like a real sense for me personally when I was about 16 years old. Um, for me, that was kind of the first time where I really had a choice over what I was going to do. Uh, was Jesus going to be the centre, or was rugby going to be the centre? Rugby was on Sundays. I loved rugby. Uh, and for me, that was kind of the first time a question was ever really asked. Um, is this thing real? And it's like the whole C.S. Lewis quote that some of you may have heard, like, if this is real, it's the most important thing in the world. And if it's not, it's like the worst thing in the world. Uh, and so for me, I kind of had a look at it and, and really kind of intentionally kind of made a decision then. Uh, and for me, I thought, hey, this is the most important thing in the world. Um, and so as a result of that, that kind of led me uh, to do what I do now, uh, to uh, work in a church for for several years as well to go to Moorlands, um, but actually more than any of that, bigger than any of that, uh, just to look to follow Jesus. Um, and since then, that's kind, of been, that's kind of been it. Lovely. And just for something quite informal, um, any hobbies you have that people would like to know? Any, any places nearby that you could recommend for people? Anything you do? What do you get up to when you're not you know, in your workplace or anything else? Sure. So hobby-wise, uh, this is well boring, by the way, so don't switch off. I love cricket, right? It's, it is the weirdest, most ridiculous Any sport. cricket fans? It's like niche as. It's Thanks. like, if you don't like cricket, don't bother. It is it's ridiculous. It's everything that you think it is. But if you do love cricket, you'll know it. There's something about it that's just awesome. So I like standing. Any, any sport that is more competitive about the lunch than the final score... I'm game with. I'm with that. I've, seen, I've been in a team, right, where we've lost and no one cares, but I've never seen judgment about a bad quiche. And, like, that's what cricket is. So that's why I love cricket. Um, and that's, uh, that, that would be the hobby. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you, Johnny, for sharing all of that. That's really great to know. Um, just before you bring God's word, I'd like to pray for you. Um, so would you all join me um, in, in prayer? 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for bringing um, Johnny here this evening. Thank you for his love for you, Lord, and thank you that he is a disciple of you and wants to continue um, preaching your word, Lord Jesus. Thank you for that passion that he has to do your work, Lord, and for um, him serving you, Lord Jesus. So would you be with him tonight? Would you bless him? Um, Would you... um, speak through him this evening, and would those words um, that he speaks echo through all of us tonight? Would you speak to us um, through this message this evening, Lord Jesus? In your name we pray. Amen. Cheers, Eden. So you've got to know me a little bit. I kind of want to get to know you slightly, because uh, I know some of you, but not all of you. And this kind of comes about a little bit from a discussion, or I should say argument, with my housemate, uh, Tom. I'm quite new to the area, moved about six months ago into the Bournemouth area. Uh, and uh, since living with my friend Tom, who I've known for several years, we've realized that in living with one another, there are kind of some tension points, kind of things that, uh, and behaviors that each other do uh, that kind of cause little bits of rift. And so if you don't mind, I want to start by asking you to be a little bit vulnerable in sharing areas of conflict that might kind of separate the room into two. Is that okay? Okay, I'm sort of seeing some sort of hesitation. That's fine. We'll we'll start slow. We'll start slow. This is the first point of tension in our household. Um, If we can have this on the slide, that could be great. Uh, Which way does the toilet roll go up? If we can go, if we'll do it in cheers, and so loudest cheer wins. Left-hand side. Most of you are wrong. Right-hand side. Oh, okay. I'm in the minority. This is a good start, isn't it? Right, next one, next one, next one. Cream teas, right? This is, this is where it gets really heated. Cream on top. Yeah, you're wrong. Cream on the bottom. Absolutely. You never put butter and, you know, you never put butter on top of the jam. Right, uh, next one. So when you have, right, this is contentious, right? Cups of tea, not bag tea, like proper loose tea leaf like tea where it's all brewed already. What goes in first, milk or tea? Milk? Absolutely, yeah, the right way of doing it. Tea? Yeah. Ah, you're all wrong. Uh, next one. Right, now this is well contentious, right? This is my friend's kid who eats a Kit Kat like this. What's the best way to eat? Are we talking snap or are we talking bite? So snappers? Yeah. Biters? Yeah, rule breakers. Come on, absolutely. Um, <laughs> two, we did, I didn't realize this was a thing until Tom raised it. When you brush your teeth, right? Do you put the water on the toothpaste or just the toothbrush? Oh, some people do both. You go like double, you're like water waster. Right, so on top of the toothpaste? On top of the toothpaste? Just on the toothbrush? Yeah, you see, some of you didn't even realize that was a thing to be divisive about, but here we are. Now, this is perhaps the most vulnerable one, and so maybe just guys on this one, right? When you get changed, do you put your pants on first or your socks on first, right? Pants on first? Absolutely. If there's a fire, you want, you want your pants on first, right? That's my argument. Socks on first? Yeah, no one wants to admit to being a psycho. Absolutely. There are some behaviors, some stuff that kind of reveals a little, uh, kind of little things about us. Uh, like if you bite into a Kit Kat without snapping it off, obviously you're in the right. But also it shows you're a bit of a rebel, right? It's a little thing that shows us a little bit about who we are. There are bigger things that we do, and it's a kind of obvious uh, equation. There are bigger actions that we do that tell people a little bit about who we are. And when that action is kind of unique to what we do, when there's an action that we partake in that's kind of more significant than how we eat a Kit Kat or how we take our tea or whatever it is, that no one else would do it that way, it kind of breeds something a little bit more than just uh, the reaction that we have when it comes to the trivial things. 
It kind of breeds a question. I wouldn't have done it like that. That's the kind of thought that we have when we do something that's significant in a different way to how anyone else would do it. It might breed something a little bit controversial, a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit difficult, maybe a little bit curious, and it might make something even a little bit newsworthy if it's big enough. And we've all had that kind of thought before, if we can have that up again. I wouldn't do it like that. That's not how I would have done it. And that phrase is brilliant, because you can kind of say it in a whole bunch of different ways. You can kind of say it in a really curious manner of like, I would have never have thought of doing it like that. Uh, or maybe you can say it in a slightly more controversial sort of like dismissive, like, I wouldn't have done it like that. Or even an impressed, like, I wouldn't have done it like that. One of the reasons I love that phrase is because whenever you look through the life of Jesus, it's filled with moments where people must have said something like that. And I think that when we read through the stories of Jesus, there's time and time again where people kind of say that in different ways. Like, I wouldn't have done it like that. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, that's not how I would have said it. That's not how I would have introduced that. Like, that's not the act I would have taken at the moment. I wouldn't have done that first, Jesus. But Jesus' life was so unique and was so intentional. It raised this question over and over again. His life was just so questionable. And so this evening, I kind of want to um, uh, tell a story and go through a story. We're going through, uh, from my understanding here at SML, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the book of Mark and the stories of Mark. Uh, and I want to go through a story right at the very beginning of Mark, where it kind of must have bred this, I'm not sure if I'd have done it like that, Jesus, kind of comments. And yet it was through this action that Jesus uh, really expressed not only his mission and his ministry uh, and why he came to earth and his kingdom, but also who he was and what he came to do and really an invitation that's extended to you as well. And so whatever reason that you find yourself here, whether this is your first time and it's kind of unlucky because you've got me speaking, or whether this is kind of your hundredth time, this is always what you do, whether you've come from a first date or an argument in the car or something in between, kind of just want to invite you to join me as we go through a story right at the very beginning of Jesus' story, at least at the beginning of where Jesus' follower, Mark, decided to start the story. And it's kind of a cool story, and it's kind of written in a cool way. Uh, this book called Mark, it's written uh, in the New Testament. It's one of the four different accounts that we have of Jesus' life. If you're new to the Bible, if you're new to faith, um, this is where we find the stories of Jesus in these four books. And Mark is kind of unique in the way that he writes. And the reason he's kind of unique is, is kind of a good reason. It's a reason that I like. It's because his book is so incredibly short. It's the shortest of all of the different um, books on Jesus. And it's incredibly rapid fire. Like when you read it, it's like story after story after story after story. Like in chapter one, we have John proclaiming who Jesus is. And then we have the baptism of Jesus. Then we have the temptation of Jesus. Then we have Jesus bringing in different disciples. We then have Jesus casting out demons. We then have Jesus healing different people. And this happens on like multiple different um, times. And then we have Jesus preaching in synagogues all around Galilee. Like that's chapter one of Mark. And it's on like two pages. It's like rapid fire, story after story after story. It's part of the reason that we might like Mark's gospel the best, his way of telling it the best. Because it was also a story, uh, sorry, also a gospel that was written to Roman people, Western people, kind of people that you and I might relate to. And the reason that's so significant is because the people of Rome were used to gospels, but not gospels like Jesus' gospel. 
The Romans were used to gospels. They were used to gospels of Rome. This word gospel, we often uh, might associate it with uh, these uh, kind of a religious language, the, the stories of Jesus, etc. But the people of Rome, the people of Rome uh, would have understood gospels to be something different. It would have been kind of political in nature. Whenever there was a new Caesar or a new king or a military victory, a gospel would have been written. The word is this euangelion, this good news. And it would have been spread to every part of Rome. And it would have been sent out and it would have been read aloud in communities. So people would have known the good news of Rome. Gospel was something that was really known in the Roman world. In fact, this is part of a gospel uh, from the Caesar, I think it's Alexandra we can have that up. This is kind of what it says. I'll try and read it out, although it's quite small. The most divine Caesar, this is a gospel of Rome, the most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards dissolution, he restored it uh, once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the, provi- uh, whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving us Augustus, who is the Caesar, who being sent to us and our descendants as saviour has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas, having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all hopes of earlier times. Now, does that sound familiar? It's kind of like this real messianic kind of like, hey guys, good news. There's someone who's bringing peace and bringing order and bringing salvation and bringing goodness. He is God manifest. He is the one that we're going to base our whole year around. He's the one that everyone's been hoping for. All of the hope of the people in the past has now come in the great Caesar Augusta. It's like this Roman propaganda, or at least Roman promise of this is what the people of Rome desperately want. And so when Mark writes his gospel, and it gets sent out all across the people of Rome, they read it, and it starts off with that exact word. This is the euangelion. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And the people of Rome must have read it being like, say again? Like, is there a new Caesar in town? But for some reason, they kind of keep on reading, and they're like, okay, well, what's this all about? And there's this weird locust-eating, wilderness-living guy called John who starts proclaiming about how this guy is going to be far greater than he is. And it's like, okay, well, that's a little bit of a weird way to start. And then Mark starts this euangelion, starts this gospel in a way in which none of us would perhaps start a gospel. When none of us would start a gospel when compared to all of the other amazing, brilliant, beautiful gospels of Rome. He starts with this kind of questionable experience, this questionable event. And it goes like this. In Mark 1, verse 9 to 11, And at that time, read it from here, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is kind of a paradoxical verse. As people would have read this and been like, okay, well, what's this good news all about? Who's this Messiah all about? Who's this Caesar all about? 
they would have read this verse and it's kind of split into two because on one side, it really does play to that. This is my son of whom I'm well pleased. There's the spirit descending like a dove. But before that, you can imagine people stopping before they even get to that part because they're like, Jesus was what? He was baptized. Like, Jesus, do, do you understand what baptism means? You mean that's like a repentance of sin? That's like a, a turning away from your evil? Like, that's kind of like a humbling thing. In fact, John, when he baptizes Jesus, we read in another account uh, in Matthew's gospel, we read that John has this exact question that he poses to Jesus. This is what John says in Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Like, like Jesus, this is not how I would do it. Like, this is like putting your socks on before your pants. Like, Jesus, you're gonna, like, people are going to ask questions about this. Like, maybe you should baptize me. Like, maybe your story, your euangelion should start as Jesus baptizing the baptizer. Like, that has a ring to it. But Jesus says this. If we can have it on the screen. Here we go. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this. This is the way we're going to do it. This is how I'm going to start. This is what I want people to know me for. This is going to be the symbol of my kingdom. This is what's going to start off as I mean to go on. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. In other words, I'm not doing this as a symbol of repentance. I'm not doing this as a symbol of all the reasons that you're doing it. I'm not doing this for the reasons you're doing it. I'm not saying the same things that you're saying. I'm doing it for a different reason. This isn't a case of going under the water and having an old life washed clean. This is me doing it for righteousness. This is a symbol of righteousness. And ultimately, this is a symbol of a future resurrection, of a new kingdom, of something that you are invited into so that I can do something once and for all. This is going to be a new kind of kingdom where all of this time, all of this time is kind of relied on you recognizing you're wrong and turning away and carry on going. This word repent literally means to turn and face up. It has connotations to mountains where the idea is it's like your view is looking down and you're looking at the wrong thing and repenting is turning around and looking up to the point in which you're always supposed to be aiming for. And repentance is good in this space of that and that's something that Jesus calls for. But he's saying, listen, if this is what your whole gospel is based on, if this is what your whole life and idea of who God is is based on, it's not going to be enough. And so I'm going to show you a new way. I'm going to be doing this not as a symbol of repentance, but as a symbol of righteousness, of a symbol of something better, where you're going to be able to receive not just a second chance, but a personal presence of God, a Holy Spirit to inhabit you, to guide you, to walk with you, where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control overflow. That is the new kind of kingdom I am inviting you into. It's not just a washing It's a complete rebirth. It's a complete new life. And that's how Jesus starts. You see, the problem with the gospel of Rome is that it promised a whole bunch of good things. But the way in which it sought to try and achieve them just went completely the wrong way. I mean, the gospel of Rome actually tried to promise salvation. We read about it in the gospel of Augustus. But in reality, it didn't give a salvation. It didn't give salvation, only persecution. It didn't give peace, only occupation. It didn't give order, only tyranny. 
It was Rome's way of trying to bend the world into itself, trying making itself the center of its own world. And it had to try and tear the realities of the world in order to try and build an empire out of it. And we kind of see the gospel of Rome and we hear of Caesar and it's old and it's ancient and it's kind of died now. And so it's easy to try and dismiss it slightly. But can I be so bold to say that maybe the gospel of Rome isn't so dead? Maybe the gospel of Rome is far more alive in our lives than we would probably be prepared to admit. I know for me that the spirit of the gospel of Rome still lives as I try and proclaim the gospel of Johnny Abbott in my life, where I so often put myself at the center of my own world, where I try and tear parts of the world out and try and create as much safety, much security, as much comfort, as much of meanness as the world will allow without looking badly upon me so that I can live in the way that I want to live, maybe at the expense of others. Where in the world do you do that? How often is it the case that we can try and create a gospel for ourselves, a good news for us? where maybe financially we do things, where actually we assume that all of, our, uh, all of what we receive is for our own consumption, where professionally it's just what people do, where backstabbing and gossip and dishonor is kind of just what people do at the expense of integrity, where there's so many moments where we look over each shoulder to make sure no one's looking because that's just what people do, and that's where we place ourselves in the center of our own story in relationships and the way in which we look for partners and we just think, well, actually, that's just what people do. That's the new way of life and, and that's just the way people date and that's the way people get to know each other and, and nothing's reserved for anything and, and that's just what I do because I'm at the center of everything. In our marriages where actually all we try and do is try and bend the relationship to work for us and it's kind of this constant battle for us and for me and for me and for me at the expense of somebody else. It's the gospel of Rome. And I think for some of us, we've experienced this. And as I'm speaking, maybe for you, you're like, yeah, I've tried that. And like all empires, it crumbles. Like all empires, eventually it falls down. And you're kind of sat thinking like, yeah, I know what that's like. Well, you've tried to get all your ducks in a row. And you're kind of looking and all that's left of yourself is yourself. And it's nothing really to be shouting about. Or maybe for you, you've actually done a really good job at creating an empire for yourself, where actually it really does look pretty strong, and you've got everything in order, and you're looking and you're thinking, hey, as jobs go, I've done a really good job for it. And yet for some reason, despite everything being in the order that you want it to be, there's still kind of this gaping chasm of peace that's gone missing, because you recognize that this isn't enough. This isn't how it was supposed to be. The good news the good news is that was never the empire you were supposed to lead. And that Jesus, as he comes in, Jesus, as he starts his story, as Rome is proclaimed about this new guy, this new Messiah, this new euangelion, that isn't filled with false promises, this guy who does something that no one else would do because no one else could do, this person who comes and lives a questionable life, and people realize that he's far more than just any other person. He starts in a way that is questionable because he wants people to recognize something. He wants people to recognize that there is something greater on offer, not an empire, but a kingdom. Let's just read this again, if we can. Should be the next slide, if it's there. Here we go, great. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized, uh, being, and was baptized by John, weird, in the Jordan. 
And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you, you are my son whom I love. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. One of the beautiful things about that last sentence, I believe, is it wasn't just a proclamation on Jesus. It was a promise that would be fulfilled to us as a result of Jesus. When we see after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, as Jesus returns and, and shows himself to his followers, and this church, start, the church starts that goes across every part of Rome, every part of the world, that scatters across the globe, and the apostles of Jesus starts writing to them to say, listen, this is the good news. This is what Jesus has achieved for you, not just through a repentance, but through a complete resurrection. And so you can now repent and fully be one with God and know who God is. This is what it's supposed to look like. And we read verses like in Ephesians, where Paul is writing to this Ephesian church to tell them about who Jesus is and what this new church should look like. And he starts in chapter one. It's like the first thing he wants them to know. We read passages like this. Praise to the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms, who tore heaven open for us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, to be blameless, not just slightly right or not just good enough, but to be holy and blameless in his sight because of what Jesus has done. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Why did he adopt us into sonship and daughtership? In accordance to his pleasure and will. Because he wanted to. Because it gave him great pleasure and will. I love this word adoption in the New Testament. It's used five times, once in Ephesians, once in Galatians, a few times in Romans as well. And to understand the power of what this word would have meant for the Ephesian people, we have to understand the culture of adoption within um, the Roman world. Uh, since the first Caesar Augustus, who that euangelion was from, adoption was kind of the culture in high Roman households and actually in low Roman households as well. Because of varying different birth rates, but also the importance of having a male heir, the, uh, the inheritance and the influence uh, and the outcome of uh, a Roman household would not necessarily be, in fact, would less often be the biological firstborn. Rather, it would be an adopted child. Uh, this was a tradition that uh, maintained throughout uh, Roman Caesars, where Roman Caesars would be passed down into an adopted son, all at the expense of the firstborn. Now, on the opposite side of that, when a child was born, it would be presented almost ceremonially in Roman households to the father. And the father, for whatever reason, could dismiss this child. It could be the wrong gender, it could be uh, financially not viable, it could be disabled, it could be something wrong with it, whereby they say, I don't want this child. And that child will be brought out to the marketplace or left on the dumpster for the gods to decide its fate. Uh, there's a pamphlet written by a man called Sonorous who comes from Ephesus. Uh, and this pamphlet, inside the pamphlet, there's a chapter that reads, how do I identify an infant worth raising? And inside there's measurements and things to look for as people would go out and search the marketplace and search the dumpsters. And as they would find these children, they would work out whether they were going to be good for slavery or prostitution. Now you can imagine... Imagine these people, these children, who are raised to be told it's all about what you do. 
You are what you do. You are what you're used for. You have no inheritance, no influence, no income. And as they come to the Ephesian, uh, the marketplace where this letter was being read, they hear this. They hear these words. You are adopted. You are adopted by God. Why? According to his pleasure and will. Because he wanted to. You have a share in his income, in his influence, uh, in, his, uh, in his identity as a result of the firstborn, as a result of what Jesus did. And right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is what he's telling people. Listen, this is going to be a different kind of kingdom where no longer are we creating empires around ourselves. Instead, we get to elect an, a king who was always supposed to be at the center, who was always supposed to do that because he does things in ways that no one else would think about. I have a friend, uh, Andy, uh, Andy, Andrew Ritchie. Um, I did Moreland's with him. He was in my year. And Andrew was one of those guys uh, all the way through Moreland's and since, uh, which he just kind of can't help but look up to, uh, partly because he was like six foot five. Um, but also, uh, he was like just one of these people that just really knew Jesus in a way that I just always aspired to. Uh, was just so close to him, like everything in his life would just seem to be centered around him. And, and, and so there was kind of like a lot of us who kind of looked up, for, uh, looked up to Andrew in more ways than one. Uh, and after Morelands, me and my friend Andy uh, went on a uh, road trip around uh, the country, kind of just to catch up with friends who we did Morelands with and to see what they were doing and to hang out. Uh, and Andrew was like top of the list of the people we wanted to meet. Uh, and at the time, I was leading a church in Suffolk. And, uh, and so when we met with uh, Andrew and he kind of asked how things were going and like sort of instinctively, you kind of want to impress him because it's Andrew and he's like, he knows everything and is great. And so I was like, oh, it's great. I did this like leadership development thing and this is all that I know and, and this is how everything's going and it's going and great and, and like, like me. And then I was like, how are you doing? How's life? And Andrew just like obliterated everything I said. And not intentionally, not from like a prideful point of view, just because that's who Andrew was. He just knew Jesus. He was like, Johnny, something I've been learning is that no matter what the day I've had, is that whenever I go to bed that night, I'm still a son of the king. Uh, like, like if I've done something really well and things have gone really great, it's just like God's position on me hasn't changed. And, and like when I try things and I try new initiatives and, and like no one turns up and it's kind of a discouragement, like something that God's been teaching me is that, hey, I'm still a son of the king. Like because of Jesus, it's like his position on me hasn't changed. Like I'm not the center of my own story anymore. Can I ask you a question? And this is the question I kind of want to leave you with a little bit, and it's this. What are the things in your life that are currently reflecting a self-made empire where you are at the center of your own story more than a Christ-centered kingdom? What are the things in your life that are currently reflecting a self-made empire more than a Christ-centered kingdom? When you put yourself at the center of your own story, when you bargain with God rather than sacrifice to God, what happens is that you are the one who takes responsibility when you bargain with God rather than surrender to God, you're the one who takes responsibility. When you're at the center of your own story, you take responsibility. And for some of you, that should scare you far more than it does because it's inevitable that an empire will eventually crumble. But when you surrender to God instead of bargain with God, when you say, I'm not good enough to be the center of any story and relinquish that position to God, you're not the one who takes responsibility anymore. When you start walking in a way that follows Jesus intently, no longer are you the one who takes responsibility. No longer are you the one who has to be concerned. 
My friend Dave, kind of coming into a bit of a finish. Maybe if the band want to start coming up, uh, we'll have some time of prayer, but um, I think there's some more music coming up as well. Uh, my friend Dave, uh, he's the father of my two godsons, Finn and Riley. Um, and my godsons are brilliant because they wind Dave up so much. Um, like I've had the joy of godfathering them and I try and teach them things like the magic word is now, not thank you and please. I'm just thinking that's going to be like a great bombshell for a teacher one day. But one of the things that Dave said once that just made me kind of laugh is because these boys are like kind of full of energy and full of beans and they're running around everywhere and doing stuff. And they'll come up to uh, their dad and be like, Dad, can we do this thing? And sometimes it's like a real obvious like, uh-uh, you can't do that. That's a bad idea. Uh, and sometimes it's like, a, yeah, yeah, you can do that. And there are other times where I'm like, Dad, can I do this thing? And Dave's just like, no. And I'm like, Dave, why do you say no? And he was like, it was just easier than yes. <laughs> like, it was like, less letters. <laughs> like, it's that kind of thing Like, where as a parent, it's like, no. And I kind of sometimes feel, when it comes to faith, when it comes to following Jesus, we live with that threat of like, if we put Jesus in the center, is he just going to say no? Is it just going to be like one of those like boring lives where you just kind of live quietly like a hermit and, and God's just going to be like, no, because it's less letters. With God, there is never that issue. When he leads us into good things, it's for a purpose. And when he leads us away from bad things, we only end up winning. When we bargain with God, when we bargain with God instead of surrender to God, we're the ones who takes responsibility. And here's the good news. As Jesus approached his people and said, listen, this is how my kingdom is going to work. I'm going to be baptized as a symbol of what is to come. Here is the good news. You no longer have to be responsible you no longer need to take responsibility for that. You get to follow me and put me at the center of your kingdom. What is it? What is it for you where for so long you've been creating a self-made empire rather than a Christ-centered kingdom? Can I invite us to stand? I want to pray for us and, and want to just spend some time where maybe we can offer those things up to God. Where maybe for a long time, like a lot of what we, our lives are about is to kind of to God and, and, and we can kind of sit comfortably with that. But we know that maybe there's a thing or two things or a lot of things where, where we've kind of been holding on. And I don't want to force you into doing anything right now and you don't have to pray a prayer or, or say anything and you can just kind of stand and that's fine and I'm not going to spread uh, any light on anyone. But kind of just want to offer some space. And offer an opportunity whereby you can sacrifice to God the things that were always supposed to be sacrificed to him. Where we can invite him once again to be center of the things in our lives, which we've kind of kept away from the center for a while. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you rest on us? Father, thank you that your position on us doesn't change when we come to you as sons, with daughters. And for me, so often, Lord, when I approach you, I kind of get this vision of a massive temple and I have to kind of crawl up the steps and I'm greeted by like your big toe because you're so massive and you're distant and you're far and you've got a big boomy voice. And Father, I just want to thank you that you're a God. You're a God who's close. You're a God who whispers to us like like a father bends down on his knees and whispers to children the important things that we need to hear. And so, Father, would you speak to us? Would you just whisper to us maybe the things that perhaps we've been holding on? 
holding on to, Lord, that you kind of want us to relinquish. Not because you're selfish and not because you're, you want to be in control and you're, you're a control freak of a God or anything like that, Lord, but because you can see that there's a burden we're holding on to you that we were never supposed to bear. Would you just bring those things to the surface now, Lord? Whether it's financially, the way we parent, professionally, Lord. It's a certain relationship that we kind of hold in a different light to all of our other relationships because we kind of want to have a bit more of a handle on it. Things we compromise on, Lord. Father, thank you that at the very beginning of your story, you set out a different kind of kingdom. A kingdom that brought us closeness to you rather than distance. A kingdom that wasn't built up with pretense and propaganda, but instead gave genuine promise and hope and salvation that's lasted beyond any empire. Thank you, Lord, that as you were baptized, it was a symbol, not just of repentance, but of resurrection, of new life that you and I are invited into. And so, Lord, with these things that are maybe at the forefront of our minds now, the forefront of our hearts, we give them to you. We offer them to you. We commit to walking in step with you. We invite your Holy Spirit to come and fill us. Thank you, Lord, that the good news is that it doesn't rely on us. It doesn't rely on us anymore. We put you first, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, as you continue to move, we continue to direct our focus on you as we sing once more. In Jesus' name.